The man who is coming to preach to us this morning, um, many of us will know him. His name is Jürgen von Hagen. He is here in Bloomington uh, for several months at a time, uh, different times of the year. He lives in Bonn, Germany, and uh, he's a professor there, but he is also a pastor at a little church in <laughs> Mechernick. Good. Is it close? Close, yeah. I need to spit on George to pronounce that correctly. Um, and, and he is preaching for us this morning, so please open your hearts to him. Good morning. Some of you know that um, I come from Germany, but I also have a home here, and a very special home because uh, my wife, Ilse, who's over there, um, came to Christ in this little town, and we're very thankful for that, and it's a privilege for me to be here this morning. The question I want to start with is, um, what do you think is the biggest risk in your life? Maybe a fire that might destroy your house? Well, then it would probably be a good idea to buy fire insurance. Or maybe it's wrecking your car. Why don't you buy car insurance? Or maybe it's uh, sickness, and you ought to buy health insurance. Or maybe it's to become poor after your husband dies. Well, buy life insurance. Whatever it is, you know, in our times we buy insurance against it, even hair loss. When when Elsa and I bought our first house in in Bloomington 20 years ago, everybody was talking about earthquake because there had just been earthquakes out in California. And everybody who knows geology even a little bit knows that. An earthquake in Bloomington is an event of zero probability. We just don't have them here. But guess what? We bought earthquake insurance because we wanted to feel secure. And there are some points I can't discuss with my wife. And and security is one of them. You know, it's our nature. And I know it's everybody's nature here that we just don't like to be exposed to risks that we can't control. And that's why we buy insurance. Now, in uh, the times when Jesus lived, there were, of course, no insurance companies. And yet people wanted to buy security, and they could insure against disasters of various kinds, but not by buying an insurance police. What they did was they made provisions for bad times. You know that concept from the story of Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, who gave advice to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and told him, look, while the times are good, build big storehouses and put parts of your harvest into the storehouses so that you have some provisions for when the drought comes and times are bad. And Pharaoh was wise enough to follow his advice. And and indeed, when the bad times came, the Egyptians were the only ones who had grain. And Pharaoh sold it to his, his neighbors and made a fortune out of it. So wealth was a way of insurance. And Proverbs 6 calls on us to be like the ants hardworking, diligent, and to store up provisions in good times for 
bad times to be protected against risk. And so property was a, was a form of insurance against all sorts of calamities. The more a man had, the more secure he was. That could be a big pile of grain. That could be a large estate where if one piece of land doesn't bring fruit, some other piece would make good for that. The more a man had, the more he was in security. Just like today, right? We're saying money doesn't buy happiness, but it makes us feel safe. Big numbers on a bank account don't buy happiness, but they make us feel safe. And the question we're dealing with this morning is, where do you find security in your life? Do you have good life insurance? Do you have insurance that gives you true security against the risks that you face in life? And Jesus tells us the story of a certain rich man to make us think about this question. And then he also wants to warn us against not seeking security at the wrong place. I want to read the story and then the following verses for you. I know you usually don't do that, but I would like you to stand up when I read the Word of God because it is the Word of God. So we find this in Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 16. Then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have made many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they, never, they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat and what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, 
and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves with money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking right into our lives and right into our worries. And Lord, you know how much we desire security, how much we want to be on the safe side. Lord, I ask you this morning that you tell us where we find security. I ask you that you open up our hearts and our ears and our minds, that we listen and learn what you want to teach us. Amen. You may be seated. So at the center of the story is a rich man who owns a large estate. The Greek word for gowned that stands there is more like a region, lands with villages and maybe even small towns around them. So this is a farmer who has an estate that goes from Martinsville all the way to Indianapolis. That's the way to think about it. A huge estate, not just one field. And this year, his many fields have yielded a marvelous harvest. And so we see this man stand in front of piles of grain, piles bigger than five times this building. That's the picture you have to imagine. And he's thinking about what shall I do with my harvest? The text says he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? And this expression shows us that he's discussing with himself and he's worried. He's agitated. At night, he's turning around in his bed from one side to the other, unable to sleep because of his large harvest. I had no room where to collect my fruit. So he's kind of like the modern rich man who has big numbers on his bank account and he can't sleep because he's always worried about, should I buy this stock? Ah, this one went down last week. Maybe that one's better or treasury securities or maybe foreign currency. And and this man can never sleep peacefully because he's always worried about his money. And so in the end... This man decides to build new barns and store his great harvest. Now, in principle, there's nothing wrong with that. Quite the opposite. God tells us to deal wisely with everything and all we have. To make provisions. Not to squander our possessions. And building barns is a good idea during a good harvest. There's also nothing wrong in principle with the great wealth of this man. Clearly, the people who were listening to Jesus were amazed about the possessions of a man. Just like today, when if somebody owned all the land between Martinsville and Indianapolis, we would say, wow, that's a lot of land. Amazing. Most of the people Jesus was talking to lived from hand to mouth. He had nothing. If they had some wealth, it would have been a sack of grain stashed away somewhere. That was all. So they were amazed at this great wealth. But the wealth itself is not bad. And the Bible tells us of many people who 
who loved God and God loved them, and God made them very wealthy. Like Abraham, we heard that in the text a few minutes ago, who received silver coins and cattle and slaves, and at the end of his life was a very, very rich man. And Jacob was rich, and King David was rich, and his son Solomon was rich, and even Jesus at one point of his life was pretty rich. Because after he was born, the Magi came, and they gave him what? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And if you know something about the customs of the time, the frankincense and the myrrh was not there to make the house smell good. Frankincense and myrrh were like money. You could put them in a bag and go and travel. And wherever you came, you could take something off the myrrh and some of the frankincense and exchange it for other things. So the Magi actually gave Jesus some wealth that he would have provisions for the time when he and his family were going to to Egypt. So there's nothing wrong with the wealth in principle, and yet Jesus shows us this man obviously as a bad example. That means we have to look a little bit closer to find out what's wrong with him. And the first thing we note is the man talks to himself. Now, we all do that sometimes, I know. But the Bible has a very negative view of self-dialogue, of inner conversations, of weighing the pros and the cons of a decision within yourself. We find that, for example, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 27, where it says, Then David said in his heart, I shall certainly perish at the hand of Saul. That should amaze us because up to this point, David is a person who lives in very close connection with the Lord. And he's got wonderful promises. He knows that he will be the king. He has experienced how God protected him. And at this instance, he speaks to his own heart. And that means somehow he has lost connection with God. He has forgotten about all the promises. And then what does he do? He goes right into the country of the worst enemies of the Jews, or the Israelites, rather, at the time, the Philistines. So inner dialogue is connected with sin. Psalm 14, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So inner dialogue is closely linked to sin. And the reason is because Inner dialogue isolates the person from the rest of the world. He's only talking to himself. He doesn't seek advice from other people. And certainly he doesn't talk to the Lord. He only speaks to himself. He's entirely reduced to himself. And of course, that's a sign of the mother of all sin. Pride. He doesn't need to talk to anybody else. He just talks to himself because anybody else is dumber than he. That's what he thinks. And he has no regard for the Lord. And then the second thing we notice is that this man who had just made an enormously rich harvest is worried. Well, that doesn't make any sense. He looks at these piles of grain and he's worried. 
And you ask yourself, well, should he not have been happy? Shouldn't he have looked at this and say, hey, I'm happy with all this, this grain and all this harvest. And no, he's worried. Shouldn't he not have invited his friends and say, hey, brothers, friends, come look at what I have harvested. Let's have a party. No, he's worried. Should he not have thought about the poor people around him and say, look, guys, I have plenty this year. Come and share my surpluses. No, he's worried. And should he not have taken the tenth of his harvest and given it to the Lord as a token of his thankfulness? No. The fact that he doesn't share his harvest neither with people nor with the Lord is just another proof of his self-centeredness, his pride. In the verses that follow, Jesus admonishes his people several times, do not worry. And the Greek word is not just simply asking what will happen tomorrow or what will happen next week. The root of this word has the meaning of to separate or to cut off. And so it stands for a kind of worry which takes hold of a person entirely. A worry that engulfs the whole person so that the person has no thought and no time left for other people and not for the Lord. Worry that makes the person only look at himself. And we all know this. We all have moments where we sit in the room and we think, ah, What shall I do? What can I do? And we only look at ourselves for solutions, right? You've all been through that. That's the kind of worry that that Jesus is talking about here. And interestingly, we find the same word in another place in uh, Luke's Gospel, in Luke 10, which is a wonderful story. Jesus visits Martha and Maria, and also two good friends of Jesus. And now... Picture the scene. Jesus is in the house. Martha is busy. And we all know this. We've all seen this, right? Martha runs up the stairs and down the stairs and here into a room. And, oh, I need to pour water there. And I need to clean up this. And this must be ready. And that must be ready. And um, she just wants to be sure everything is perfect and, 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 and ready. And then meanwhile, Maria, Maria sits at the feet of Jesus And listens to him. And then finally, Martha gets angry. And she goes to Jesus and says, Do you not care? Do you not care that my sister leaves all the work to me? Would you please go and tell her to help me? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried. And that's the same word. You're worried about many things. But Maria has chosen the good part. Martha has been so engulfed with the the idea that everything has to be perfect and she has to make it perfect that she hasn't even time for the living God when he comes to her house. So worry of that kind, which takes a whole person prisoner, is a sign of pride too. Because it makes us look at ourselves alone for what is needed. And it can keep us from recognizing God 
when he stands right in front of us. And notice that Jesus says, Maria has chosen the better part. Being worried is always a choice that we can make or not make. And if we do worry, we may miss the living God coming into our lives. And then there are the many eyes and mys in this text which express the same thing. Which, what shall I do? I have no place where I can collect my fruit. I will do this. I will tear down my barn. So it, it tells us this man knows only himself. His wealth has made him entirely blind for any other person and certainly for God. And he's really a very, very lonely man because he's the only one that really matters and exists in his own world. And that will also be clear from his answer. What shall I do? I will tear down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And notice again, there's nothing wrong with this idea to tear down the barns and build greater. That's a smart idea. He could have built additional barns, but that would have taken some of the good land, right? It was smart to build bigger and greater. But his plan is bad because the whole purpose is to gather all his grain and all his goods to himself and then draw everything near to himself and fence everything in so that nobody can come close and take anything away from him. Remember Scrooge McDuck? That's the man, Scrooge McDuck who takes a bath in the morning in his gold coins, swim in his gold coins. And then when Huey, Dewey, and Louie come around in the evening, he doesn't even recognize how poor they are because it never comes to his mind that somebody would need something. And this rich man is exactly the same kind of person who knows only himself and his wealth and only what he has accumulated during his life. And there's no room for other people. There's no room for God in his life. And why should there? His last sentence tells us exactly what he thinks. Then I will say to my soul, Dear soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Now take your ease and eat and drink and be merry. And no, there's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, and being merry. Jesus loved eating, drinking, and being merry with other people. That's how he brought the gospel to other people. To the point that the pious people, the Pharisees in his time said, the man is a glutton and a wine-bibber. And I'm not saying Jesus was drunk, but it tells us he loved being happy in meals with other people because that's how he told the gospel. And the gospel is a happy message. There's nothing worse worse than preachers who have a face with their mouth torn down. I have a really good message for you. That's not credible. We should be happy about the gospel. But that's exactly what this rich man is incapable of. In the face of his enormous wealth, he's not happy. He's worried. And then he defers happiness to tomorrow when bigger barns are there. And his wealth and his life with it are secured. And there we are at the core of his sin. The rich man says, Then I will say to my soul, Dear soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Now take your ease 
your ease or your rest. That's what he really wants. A life without worry, without stress, without laboring. Security. Jesus uses the same word in a different place where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. It's the same word. Rest or ease. Peace. Security. Relax. You don't have to fear anything. That's the idea. And that's exactly what this rich man wants. Security which he hopes to get from his wealth and looking at his big pile of grain, he will say to himself, now I have my rest. Nothing can happen. Now I will be happy. And then, of course, everything goes different from what he thought. Suddenly, God talks to him and says, you fool. And people, that's a bad word at the time. Fool is about the worst you can call a person. Because wisdom at the time of Jesus was very much revered. And wise men and wise women had high regard in society. Wisdom meaning knowing how to live a happy life. That's wisdom. It's not science. The university doesn't teach you wisdom. The university teaches you science. It's a very different thing. Wisdom is knowing how to live a happy life. You fool. A fool has no wisdom. And now you're going to ask, well, but why is he a fool seeing how diligent he is in making plans and guarding his property and making provisions for the future rather than squandering everything. And God says to him, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who will those things be? Whose will those things be which you have provided? So the rich man is a fool because he knew no one in his life except for himself. He is a fool because he sought security in something that couldn't give him security. A fool because... He thought that his life, his soul, his entire personality, you could say, belonged to him. He's a fool because he didn't realize that his life had been given to him by God and it still belonged to God. He's a fool because he never thought of the possibility that God would demand it back to him. And there is at this point more at stake than simply passing away. It's not that God just says, look, man, tonight you're going to die. Sorry, that was it. God says, tonight your soul will be required of you. And that means tonight you will have to give an account for your soul. It's the same point that Jesus teaches us in the talents, in the parable of the talents. God entrusted your life and your soul to you. And now it's time to give an account. In the talents, Jesus says, everything we have, everything we own, everything we are has been entrusted to us by the Lord. And not just entrusted, but entrusted with a purpose. And the purpose is that we use it to bring glory to the Lord and to make a profit. To bring fruit for the Lord. And then in the parable of the talents, Jesus says, everybody who does not 
use his life and everything he has to the glory of God and to bring fruit for God will be thrown out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. But those who use their lives and what they have and what God has entrusted to them, to his glory and to his profit, they will live in his kingdom forever. So Jesus wants us to realize two points here. First, with all the diligence and all the careful planning that we do in our lives, and we should do in our lives, we should never forget that our lives can end much sooner and much faster than we expect. I went back to Germany last week for some business I had to do, and I wanted to use the opportunity to meet my daughters, who are out of the house now. Uh, we, we had made plans to have dinner together on Sunday, last Sunday, that is. And Saturday, the Saturday before that, at 4 p.m., the phone rings. Now, you all know what that means when the phone rings at 4 p.m. You're worried, right? And so I pick up the phone, and there is my daughter, Leonie, and she says, Dad, we just had a car accident. The car flipped over several times, and, and it's totally destroyed. And the f- five people in the car are not hurt. Hallelujah. This is three days before my daughter's birthday, and I told her la- later that day, you know, today's your birthday. God just gave you your life back a second time. Now, think about that. Don't just let it pass. But it's one of those examples where suddenly you realize, you know, you make plans and it's necessary to make plans, but things can be over. Your life can be over much faster than you think. And Jesus wants us to realize that we do not hold our own lives in our hands. It is God who decides when our lives will be over. Jesus wants us to live in full awareness of the fact that at any moment, any moment, it could happen. Any moment could be our last. And what does that mean? It means in the context of this story, do not defer your joy until tomorrow. People, if you have a reason to be happy today, be happy today. Because you don't know if there's a tomorrow for you. And if you have an opportunity to share what you have with somebody else today, share today. You don't know whether there's an opportunity tomorrow. You don't even know whether there is tomorrow. And if you have an opportunity to praise the Lord and to thank Him today, praise the Lord and thank Him today because you don't know whether there is tomorrow. And then there's also this. The mere thought that my life can be over at any moment, if this is what the Lord wants, that thought would be terrible. That thought would be a cause of awful fear, horror. If it came with the idea that when my life ends, I will face an angry judge. And that judge will look at me and say, you did not use your life in the way I intended and therefore 
you're out. Nobody can live with that thought happily. A lot of people would rather not think about God at all so they don't have to think that thought. And therefore, do not defer the opportunity to confess your sin before God until tomorrow. Because you don't know whether there is tomorrow. And do not defer the opportunity to accept Christ as your Savior until tomorrow. Because there may not be a tomorrow. John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we can be cleansed today, people, let's confess our sins today. We don't know whether there is a tomorrow. And that takes us right to the second point Jesus wants, to, wants us to realize. And that point is our life is alone from God. And one day we will be held accountable to, by him for what we have done with our lives. And I know this is a very unpopular idea in our times and our culture because our society, our culture constantly insinuates the exact opposite. The purpose of your life is your own self-fulfillment. And you have the right to choose whatever you want to choose. That's the message of our society. And more concretely, if you don't like your wife anymore, there is www.match.com. Find another one. You have the right to it. If you find your husband boring, you have the right to try something else. How about the Escapades Club? Everybody does it. You have a right to do it. If your child doesn't fit into your life plans right now, have it killed. We call that abortion. You have a right to it. If you're tired of caring for your old mother who is frail and sick, well, you know, tell her that she has a right to choose death. And maybe she gets the message. You have a right to do that. We call homosexuality a lifestyle, and if somebody chooses it, it's his or her right. And is there any difference between being a homosexual and, and being a Christian in the eyes of our society? No, it's a lifestyle. Both are lifestyles. If you choose one, it's your right. If you choose the other, that's your right too. And so this entire thinking and arguing in terms of rights and, and in terms of self-fulfillment rests on one, one critical assumption. And that assumption is, my life belongs to me. Your life belongs to you. I can do with my life what I want. You can do with your life what you want. This is what our rights, and this is the thinking of our society. And you know, you can preach everything you want as a Christian, but if you question that, that assumption, you will get all the hatred of our society. Because that's what everything rests on. My life belongs to me. Your life belongs to you. And this is the thinking of the rich man in our story, the thinking of a man who sees himself as the only person of importance in his world. 
the thinking of a person who seeks security in his possessions, in what he has, what he is, what he has achieved. And now that we've understood the principle, we have to be very careful and not confuse the problem with the wealth. Because the problem is self-reliance. It's the idea that I can find security in myself. And the problem is not the big pile of grain. There are many, many different ways how people seek security in themselves and in what they have and do. Wealth is one way. Careers, professional careers and success. I'm a tenured professor. I'm secure. That's the fool who doesn't think about God. Self-righteousness is another dimension, the problem of the Pharisees in Jesus' days. People who thought that by being legalistic and by following every rule in the Bible and more, they could be secure, safe before God. Offerings, donations, good works can be another dimension of the same problem. And there are still... Many, many people today who think that they can earn God's pleasure by how much they give to the church and how many hours they spend being busy around the church. And Don't get me wrong. Tim is already looking critically here. Giving to the church is a good thing. Spending time here and working for the church is a good thing. The problem is we're always tempted to twist the meaning of what we're doing. And to think that when we give and when we work for the church, now I'm safe. But that's the same thinking as the thinking of the rich man. This is what I will do. I'll change my schedule and only work for the church. And God will say, you fool. Tonight your life will be required from you. And then what? So the question this morning is, where do you find security? What is the treasure in your life? Because the treasure is what you rely on to find security. Is it money? Is it an academic title? Is it a good job? Is it your retirement pension? Your spotless reputation? your countless activities for the church, whatever it is, you trust it more than God and you hang your heart on it and that's your treasure and that's the problem because it becomes your trap. Jesus says, as the rich man, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich with God. So he who spends all his time working for the church and does not and does so without love for Christ and does so without love for his brothers and sisters in the church, he is just piling up riches for himself. And he's not becoming rich with God. Because as long as you think that you find security in what you do and what you are, you trust yourself. And Proverbs 28 tells us, only fools trust in themselves. If you do, you end up like the rich man who suddenly realizes that in spite of his enormous wealth, he really had nothing that provided security. What really matters is being rich with God. And so the obvious question then is, how do we become rich with God? What shall we do to become rich with God? 
And the answer is simple and shocking. The answer is nothing. Nothing. If you're like me, you find that shocking. Because I can take the message that God will hold me accountable and say, okay, I'll work. I will work. I will do this and I will do that. And I'll pile up all sorts of good works for myself. And then God will come in and say, well done, you're rich with me. And Jesus says, no. Nothing we can do makes us rich with God. As God says in Isaiah, I detest your offerings. I detest your good works. But then it's also very simple because it tells us it's not that we must do something to become rich with God. It's that God must do something to make us rich with him. And the great message, the wonderful message of the gospel is he's done it already. We don't have to worry. He's done it already. As Jesus says in verse 32, do not fear for this is your father's good pleasure to give to give you the kingdom. And here, the, the Greek is a little complicated, but it emphasizes two things. First, the Father has made up his mind once and for all to give the kingdom to those who trust in Christ. And secondly, he's already done it. And that action is not reversible. It is truly secure. Which means that our treasure with him is, in Je- is Jesus Christ. Jesus who died for our sins, our pride, our self-centeredness. Jesus who made us fit for living in communion with the living God. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone, everyone who seeks his security in Christ alone, that person, God makes him one of his children And as a child of God, a heir of his kingdom. And this is what it means to be rich with God. To be a co-owner of the kingdom. That's true wealth. To be a co-owner of the kingdom of God. So this is the only insurance in life you can get. And the only true security that you can find. Christ has died for us so we can live Live with him and our Father in heaven forever. As Paul says, because we have become children of God, nobody and nothing can do us any harm, can separate us from the love of God forever. So if you accept this treasure, then you will find true security. And that security will change your life. That security will change your life Because if you accept the assurance that God gives us through Christ, you can stop worrying. You don't have to look at yourself for the solutions of your problems anymore. You don't have to rely on what you are and what you do. With this treasure, you can even take risk. You can take the risk of asking God to come into your life. Which is risky business, people. If you let God come into your life, you never know what happens. You can take the risk of letting other people into your life, which is risky business, because you never know 
what happens. But if you have the, the security of Christ as your treasure, you can take that risk. And then you can start sharing things. You can start doing good works. You can start working around the church and giving money to the church, not in order to pile up riches, but because you live in security before God. Early in this chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast in hell. And that is God. And so he's saying, Don't fear creatures. Fear the Creator. And here the message is similar. Jesus says, The biggest risk in your life, the biggest risk in your life is that your life suddenly ends and you're not prepared to face your judge. That's the worst that can happen. Everything else is secondary. And so in order to live in security, we need insurance against that risk. And the only insurance we get is in the blood of Jesus Christ and trusting in Christ alone. So don't be a fool this morning. Don't be a fool. Acknowledge that your life and everything you have do not belong to you. They have been entrusted to you by God. And because this is so, don't be a fool, but recognize that God can take everything away any moment. God will hold you accountable for it and can any moment And don't be a fool, but accept the great treasure which God has provided for us in Christ. If you want to find true security, don't be a fool. Try trust alone. Because through him, we live securely and in loving communion with our Father in heaven forever. Amen.